only source of true delight whom I unseen adore. Unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. You're listening to the weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. The following message was recorded live from our sanctuary. Our prayer is that this message would nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you as you listen. See my bleeding This morning's scriptures in Mark chapter six, verses one through six, in your uh, blue hymn or your blue uh, pew Bible, it's on page eight forty one. It's Mark six. One through six. And he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath they began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How, did, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching the word of God. Let us uh, seek God's blessing as we come to His Word. Lord, we confess that many times our dealing with the Word hardly even gets going in worship. We are distracted from the beginning. We are thinking of other things. We wander back and forth. By the end of it, we're not really sure what was said. Or even, though, Lord, as I've experienced many times, if I really listen and get what's being said, how quickly I forget it, how little of it do I apply to my life, how little emotion is involved ever, how little I meditate on what I've heard and pray over it. Oh, Lord, it is your word. Not because I'm here, but because it is your word that we seek to understand. Your truths, your doctrine that we seek to know. The explanation, even by these weak lips, of God's salvation, God's person, God's glory, the Lord Jesus Christ and what he's done for us and how we're to respond to you. Lord, give us grace. Give me grace that we will focus upon you, and, Lord, that we will come after you even now in these next minutes, and that we will believe you and trust you. Lord, we ask this in the precious name of Christ. Amen. This is a very striking passage in Mark chapter 6. Many commentators have talked about how bold the statement is in Mark 6, if you're there with me on page uh, 841, that 
he could do no mighty work there. Sounds almost blasphemous. It's not intended to say that he was stripped of his power somehow, that his power depends on whether people believe in him or not. That's plainly not the case. He comes to us and renews us in faith uh, and draws us to himself when there is no faith, and he puts faith in our hearts. Uh, Some think that this may mean that very few people were even brought to him because of the unbelief there, that that's part of what's intended, or perhaps that he could do no work because it was outside of his purpose to work in that kind of context, and so he would not. They were too familiar with him. You know, he grew up there. That's the kind of language that's brought that that they uh, use here. When you say this man or this one, we might translate it, or we might say in our vernacular, "Where'd this guy get this stuff?" This guy. One commentator said that that's kind of a, a good equivalent. You know, where'd this guy get these things? What does the wisdom give to this guy? How how such mighty works done by his hands? Isn't this the carpenter? This is the carpenter. He, the carpenter in a small town like this did a little of everything. He may have worked, he worked with wood probably, but he worked with stone and other things. He was like the man about town and maybe even the outskirts doing all kinds of things, working on buildings, whatever was needful. So they knew him. This was not a dishonorable thing. Uh, and to say that he was the son of Mary is likely to indicate that Joseph had died at this point. He's saying, look, we know him. We know his family. This can't be right. This can't be anything really. He can't really be the prophet. How did this happen? Well, I don't really know. They're not doubting that it did happen because some works were done, but they couldn't believe in him. So their astonishment is ruined by their unbelief. They were astonished, but they were more astonished at the incongruency of it. They weren't even rightly astonished. Astonished so as to entrust themselves to Jesus. But astonished that such a one would do such a thing and, well, let's not let that bother us too much. And isn't it amazing that their astonishment is matched on the other end by Jesus marveling, just being amazed. And I like what... uh, Joseph Alexander said to reconcile, because he's the God-man, he says to reconcile omniscience with surprise is not part of our privilege or duty. (laughs) I like that. We don't have to reconcile that or worry about it. It just says that he was surprised. He marveled. But you see, they're they're the ones that lost. Because even as he says that he did no mighty work except laying his hands on a few sick people, it's to contrast what he had done in so many places. How many people, the multitudes that he had healed, and here very little was done because of their unbelief. And he was marveling at that unbelief. And so as we're talking about faith and worship, I want to talk about faith in regard to public worship. Like last week, we talked about uh, or adoration in regard to public worship. I want us to use this as a kind of backdrop. What are we believing God for when we come to public worship? 
I could ask it specifically, what today were you believing God for when you came to worship? Let's just think about that a minute. (laughs) What things were you expectant of this morning? What were you looking for, hoping for, seeking Him to do in your life and in our lives? Or could we say, if we could do a little uh, dipstick into each of our hearts, you know, and then pull it out and see what the level of faith and expectancy was, we'd say, ugh, hardly any oil showing, (laughs) hardly any faith showing, any belief And I would encourage you and also warn us all that there will be very little done in the face of unbelief. And that without faith, as we began our worship from Hebrews 11, notice we must believe that He is, but it's a particular kind of belief in His existence that He's a rewarder of those that seek Him. Otherwise, we don't please Him at all. Otherwise, unbelief despises Him. Unbelief doesn't recognize His goodness and His willingness to bless. Unbelief doesn't recognize His promise and lay hold of that promise and look expectantly to see that promise fulfilled in our lives. Our whole lives are to be built around Promise, in fact, turn with me to the end of your Bibles, toward the end. If you're in the Pew Bible, it's page 1018, 1018. And I want to look at this verse in coupling it with Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. The essential nature of of faith in in worship. We must be believing Him. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. And notice how he puts it here in the first of 2 Peter. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Now, notice the phrase, the knowledge of Him. But verse 4 makes that knowledge come through the door of promise. Notice verse 4. By which, His glory and excellence, He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature. So that you may embrace Him, believe in Him, fellowship with Him, know His power and love, experience Him, taste Him, to be partakers of Him in the fullest sense. Just think of the Lord's Supper and how it pictures our embracing Christ in the fullest sense. All of His salvation, all that He's provided for us, He gives Himself for us. And that's some of what Peter means here, partakers of the divine nature. How do we become partakers of the divine nature? Through promise. 
It's as though we come to the door that's marked the knowledge of God and how we embrace Him and how we partake of Him and bring Him to ourselves. And that door has promise on it. And it's only through promise. It's never outside of promise. In other words, it's always based upon what God pledges and covenants to do for His people. And you see, couple that with Hebrews eleven six. without faith it's impossible to please Him. We must believe He's a rewarder. We must believe He is a promising God. Not promising in the sense of a promising situation, you know. Although He's promising in that sense, ultimately, you know. Very promising that you would stake your life on Him. But He is a God who gives Himself, pledges Himself completely and fully for our good. That's the whole meaning of covenant. Covenant is a super promise. Covenant is a binding promise. Covenant is a promise that is sealed in the very blood of His own Son to do us good. And the very meal that we celebrate is fundamentally, as he says, the new covenant. It's the new promise to us, the new pledge to do us good. And it's the new covenant in his blood. See, here's my newly formed or newly expressed commitment to do you good, and I pledge it in my blood. This is the new covenant, a new promise to you. And we partake of him by promise. And so, how are we coming to worship? Are we coming to worship in faith or not? Are we coming to worship more like the people of Israel, uh, or the people of Nazareth here, his hometown, and we're just kind of shrugging our shoulders at Jesus? We don't believe that he'll do anything for us? We don't believe that he will come and visit us as a congregation, that he will fill us and enrich us in this place. It is an extension of how you believe him every day, of course. But I'm trying to think of it in terms of worship itself. Let me read to you what the psalmist writes. In contemplation of Israel, excuse me, in the wilderness... Could you switch me to this, and that way when I clear my throat, it won't be. I can at least clear it away from the mic. Thank you. Everybody says, thank you. <clears throat> there, wasn't that better? You know. <clears throat> All right. Here in Psalm 106, <clears throat> verse 24. You know, they came, <clears throat> here's Israel in the wilderness, coming up to <clears throat> the promised land. And it says, they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. Despised it. Here is, the the, the land is the epitome of his promise. It's the tangible evidence of his promise. It's it's like the the concrete uh, form of his promise. It's really the pledge of himself through the land. I will be your God, and here's the land as a pledge for it. And they despised it. Yeah, it was dangerous. There were giants. There were high walls. 
But the promise was there. I will bring you into this land. And notice back in Numbers chapter 14, when the spies had come back out of the promised land from spying, thank you, I feel like that guy I saw one time, he was preaching so hard, he said, I'm getting hot, and he threw his coat off, and his assistant pastor caught the coat, you know, in the air. I've always despised extra attention like this, and I'm sorry for that. I can just see Steve in back, or catching my coat. Steve said, yeah, I can see that too. <clears throat> so as, they were, as, the, as the attitude was beginning to manifest itself when the spies came back out of the land and they were saying it's too dangerous for us, the, the walls are too big, the giants are, are big, and there's Joshua and Caleb trying to convince them to go in. And kids, you know our little song. Twelve men went to spy on Canaan, ten were bad and two were good. What do you think they saw in Canaan? Ten were bad, two were good. Some saw giants, big and strong, but some saw grapes with clusters long. That's the ten bad men. Some, Jacob, I mean Joshua and Caleb, saw God was in it all. Ten were bad, two were good. Okay? That's our little song. Everybody. (laughs) So here's Jacob and Ca- uh, Joshua and Caleb trying to convince them, yes, there are giants. Yes, there are big walls. But the land is glorious and God has promised we can win. You see, they were believing in the promise. They were believing in the goodness and wisdom and power of God, putting themselves in his hands, even though it looked like they would be defeated. No, they're going to put themselves in his hands. And so here they say, Only do not rebel against the Lord. Do not fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. We're just going to eat them up. They're nothing. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Then all the congregation said to stone them with stones. But the glory of the Lord appeared at the tent of meeting to all the people of Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done among them? That really gets to me. You want to despise him? Then don't believe his promise. You want to despise him? Let your life not be built around his promise. Let his promise not shore you up and give you strength and happiness and joy and energy day by day. That's called unbelief, a despising him. Because he means for you to taste his goodness. He means for you to know him and to know his strength and his grace. To believe in the great work that he has done for you in Christ Jesus and its high effectiveness in your life. How long will they not believe in me? And so the psalmist in Psalm 106 contemplating that Numbers 14 event They despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. So they despise his gift and they despise him and they do not believe in him and his goodness. 
That's why, as we said two weeks ago, talking about faith and Abraham, when he was uh, believing in God for Sarah to give birth, said that he didn't waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And so I asked this question of us. Are we like uh, Nazareth, Nazareth? Are we like Israel? Or are we like Abraham? You see, we talked about adoration. And adoration and faith just go together. The more you admire him, the more you trust him. The more you can't believe you're astonished at him, the more you give yourself to him. The more you want to do his will, the more you admire his word and his ways and want to be like him. So adoration and faith hang together. They're in lockstep. And so worship is full of faith. It is full of expectation. Because mainly we come here to please God, not to please ourselves. We, we come here and in a sense, he's the audience and, and we're giving this whole thing up to his praise. The thing, one of the things he desires is our faith, our trust. And that's part of a broken and contrite heart that he, that we're told in Psalm 51 and other places that he looks to. Not just an outward sacrifice, but a heart that's broken, that's dependent, but that's expectant. And that's why I think those two words are so important for faith. We're utterly dependent upon Him, looking to no other resource but Him, but we are expectant that He will act for us. And I think many times we are, we feel helpless, or we feel weak, and we feel in one sense dependent, but we really aren't expectant and therefore we are given to unbelief. I don't really think he's going to do us good. Either because we think he's not good enough, he, he, we don't deserve it, he's not really that kind, he's not really that merciful, his favor really couldn't be on me to that degree. And all of that is a despising, a despising of his promise and a despising of him. So let me just give a kind of structure of suggestion for several things that we must believe him for and then apply it a little bit in worship. Three things that have grown and become three clear categories. I think I've shared this before. I know for some of you I have. But first is that we trust him in his favor. We trust his favor. And trusting his favor begins, yes, with trusting in what he says, that if you trust in my son, then your sins will be taken care of. Your sins will be removed as far as the east is from the west. That Jesus Christ has died in the place of sinners, and the Father offers the Son for any who will trust him. And all of our sins are immediately taken away. And we are declared righteous and accepted before God in a permanent relationship of acceptance. But the thing, that, the thing that really separates us from the spiritual men and the spiritual boys, so to speak, is if we are confident in his real favor, his smile upon us. It's the whole effort of our course on sonship on Sunday nights. 
And sometimes the question is even asked, if, if you picture what God, how he's looking at you, how he views you, what's the look on his face? Many times we'd have to say, stern, stern, sad, disappointed, frustrated. Instead of, the Lord wonderfully, amazingly sees me in Christ. I know that not everything I do pleases him. I know that. And it's not that he overlooks my sin, but he always, always is committed to my good. And I'm forever in his favor in Christ because I belong to Christ. In fact, I believe that because I'm united to Christ, the same embrace of his own son is now given to me because I'm united to him. I'm in his son forever. And so he only shows me favor. And even when he disciplines me, and some of his saints were disciplined very hard in Scripture, like David. He suffered consequences, but he never lost the favor of God. It is critical. It is critical for adoration and praise. It is critical for obedience that we Trust him and trust his favor. I, I love how uh, Larry Crabb in his book, uh, The Safest Place on Earth, talks about four passions that are ours as being new in Christ. A passion to worship, a passion to trust, a passion to grow, and a passion to obey. These are the furnishings, as he calls them, of the new man that God has given to you and to me. And, and I want you not only just to sit here and say, well, I don't, I don't really trust in that favor. How do I get it? But to begin to cry out and say, Lord, give me that kind of trust. Give me that kind of faith because we read in Scripture that faith is a gift. And so helplessly come to him and say, Lord, I want to rest in your favor and taste your favor and be exhilarated in your favor. And I, I, want, it to, I want to taste it every day and I want to taste it especially in worship with the people of God. Oh, Lord, enable me to have an unmixed faith, in, uh, a faith in your unmixed favor expectant that you will do me good. That, that's why, as we talked about two weeks ago, we believe that he has planned to do us good, would do us good with all of his heart, will not turn away from it, rejoices to do us good. Why does he rejoice to do you good if you're not in his favor? You're in his favor because, because you belong to Jesus Christ. And some of you maybe don't even care about his favor. This has fallen on deaf ears. Let me just, if maybe this can shake you a little bit to want to enjoy his favor, is that if you ignore his favor and despise the possibility to, to taste and enjoy and delight in this favor, then judgment awaits. Think of the contrast. Think of the father offering his son and it says those who believe will have eternal life. Those who do not obey the son will have judgment and eternal death. And that may sound like, well, now you're not talking about favor anymore. Right. If you refuse him, if you say, I don't care about his favor, I don't even want his favor. I just want to live my life. 
But that will only end in the most terrible judgment that will last forever. He offers you His favor now and forever in Christ. But not only favor, transformation. Transformation. We trust Him that He will change us. It's amazing how much time is spent in Paul to tell us that we are completely new creatures in Christ. He doesn't just say, you've got to change and do this and this and this. But he always lays out that you have died with Christ to your old life. Your union with Christ that gives you favor, this union with Christ takes you through a similar death and resurrection. Christ died to his old life and was raised to a whole new life. And you die to your sinful life. You die to the dominion of sin and you're raised to a whole different life where the power of God has control of you. And that's not an imagination. That's real. I'm always amazed to think of the influence of Nadia's adoption from China at nine months old into America. Think of how her whole world has changed. The influences in her life have been completely changed. She was she died to her life there and was raised to a new life here in many ways. And that's what happens with us. What do we expect him to do in our lives? How do we expect him to transform our relationships? Or if I don't have control of the other person to control, to transform my responses to that person I'm living with. To be everything I can be in Christ, to exude Christ toward this person in a difficult situation. Do I believe in the transforming work of God? And you've heard me quote it before, but in Ephesians 3, he talks about the, the, the surpassing uh, power to do beyond all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. And early in Ephesians 1, he hooks that power to the very resurrection of Christ. And he says, that's the power toward us who believe. Do we believe it? Do we believe in the power of the resurrection now applied to our hearts? A power to do beyond all we could ask or think according to this power that works within us. And finally, the, the, to trust him in his providence, both personally and corporately. That is, to trust him, Romans eight twenty eight, that he will work all things together in my life. That he will move me step by step in my life to use me as an instrument and that he will so work in my life that even the things that I've messed up that just plague me that I've done, they're not beyond his sovereign power. They're not beyond his sovereign power. In fact, he will use them for good. They're in his hands now. They're in his hands now. And I can trust him and say, Lord, whatever I've done wrong, I confess it. I put myself in your hands, and Lord, I trust in your goodness. The same goodness that took the worst deed in history of the crucifixion of Christ and turned it into the greatest accomplishment for good in the history of the world, even though those men were still evil in what they did. Amazing. He can do that with the crucifixion. 
He can use the things in your life that plague you that you've done them. Put it in his hands. Trust in his sovereignty. Trust in his goodness when he says, Come, I will give you rest. I will take the whole of your life and it will be like clay in my hands now. So we trust him for favor. We trust him for transformation. We trust him in his providence. Not only individually, but as a church. Trusting him that he is going to do something with us as a body in this place and around the world. Do we believe that? Are we expectant for what he will do to bring our gifts together in effective ministry in this city and around the world? Our resources to bring more and more people through conversion into our fellowship for more and more influence to transform society around us. Does this form any part of our expectant faith as we come to worship, as we live day by day? I know, I know, a lot of times we're just thinking, dude, I'm just trying to get through the day. And you're talking about, it changed the world, you know. I'm sure it feels like that sometimes. I'm just trying to get through the day. But when we come to worship, it's to encourage our faith, if anything else. It's to stimulate our faith together as the people of God, to play off one another's faith, to be encouraged by one another's faith, to purposely believe God together individually and corporately. It begins with the call, the call to worship, to hear the call and say, God, I believe that you want me to come into worship. I trust you that you will want me to come to worship. And the final benediction, it's, that's why we don't have you bow your heads. You know, Please bow your heads for the benediction. We like for you to look up, to look at me, not because I'm anything, but I'm, I'm here, I'm a messenger, okay? I'm a messenger from God, and he says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And you're to say, oh, the Lord has pronounced grace on me. The Lord has pronounced peace I believe it, oh God. I believe that I go with your grace and peace and your strength and power. I trust you, oh God. You see, that's a different way than saying, oh, we're going to have to sit down and listen to another announcement after this. I don't know if I'm going to get home in time for the roast beef. You know, whatever it is. Rather than trusting, believing in the word pronounced in our worship today, believing in John 3 after we confess our sin, believing in the grace of John 3, 16 and 17, believing in the midst of the hymns, phrase after phrase, trying to get our heads around it, trying to get our hearts around it, trying to trust him for these things that are declared to us, and especially, of course, in the word itself. To believe that word, to believe in the wisdom of the God that gives it, the goodness of that God, to believe in the effectiveness of his word for our lives, to believe it to such an extent that we value it and treasure it. And, you know, when I was in one situation, I won't describe where because you could maybe find out who it was, but I remember I was in one church for a whole year and the minister was of average ability. Like me, well, I'm subpar. But anyway, he was, say, of average ability. I'd heard a lot of better ministers. But he was faithful. He proclaimed the truth. 
And, I, and during that year, I can remember how precious that word was to me. And I heard it morning and evening. We, we had sermons in the morning and the evening. I heard him speak on Wednesday nights, and I sat in Sunday school. And just a hunger for the word. And whatever it was, even whatever form it was, I wanted to take that word and, and take it home and contemplate that passage. And I had notes, and I would think of everything he said, and then I'd make further notes of things that I thought of because of what he said. And, and it would drive the word into my heart, and I would, I would really feed on it. It would change me. And I would try to make specific applications for it. That is faith in his word. That's a people that believes that God speaks in his word. And this word will transform my life. And I will not let it go. I will hide it in my heart. I will practice it in my life. I will not despise my God and his word. God means to do glorious things in our fellowship, I believe. I believe he wants to astound us, astound us in this hour and then from this hour in our lives. And so, will you pray with me for faith? Will you pray with me that We will look upon Christ and see him and our faith will be built up more and more. Faith is something we've just got to exercise and learn to use and begin believing him in any and every situation. I'll leave you with this illustration. I'm I'm reading in English history. and uh, The Battle of Sluice, there's many pronunciations offered, but we'll use that. The Battle of Sluice, this was in the 14th century, okay? King Henry III reigned from uh, 1327 to 1377. King Henry III was quite a warrior. And what was developed during this time was the longbow. Okay? And in the Battle of Suisse, it was one of the first times that the French had run into the longbow. Uh, the harbor was being blocked by 200 French ships, and there were also Norman ships and Genoese ships. And the the English had a, small, a far, far smaller number of ships. But King Henry thought, this is our opportunity to free the English Channel. First real naval battle uh, uh, for the Eng- in English history, and it was the beginning of the Hundred Years' War. Well, the battle went the way of the English because of the longbow. Even though the crossbow was more technologically advanced, nobody could match the speed of men who were using the longbow. But this is interesting. You had to train from childhood. Boys had to start with the longbow because it was six feet high, which is taller than almost all Englishmen and Welshmen. The Welsh developed it. And you had to pull it back three feet. And you had to work at it from childhood to develop the arm, the arm strength to pull it back. And also, the French didn't even have the tradition of taking a piece of elm and building it into a perfectly balanced bow. They didn't even have the culture for it. A whole culture was built around the longbow so that it was outlawed to have any other sport on the village green except uh, archery. It was the only sport you could practice because there was the development, a whole culture built around it. Well, Battle of Sluice. 
200 ships. The rain of arrows on those 200 ships was so great that they abandoned the 200 ships. Just like handed them over. It was just devastating. They were so embarrassed by this loss that nobody wanted to tell King Philip that what had happened. We lost, by the way, 200 of the 200 ships. Okay. We gave them to him. You know, we just handed them over. And it was left up to the jester to tell King Philip. And this is how the jester put it. The English are cowards. They did not have the courage to jump into the sea like the French and the Normans did. (laughs) But I want you to think about a whole culture built around that one tool that gave them superiority for a hundred years against the French in pitched battle. Oh, brothers and sisters, if we had the longbow of faith and we develop it and we build our whole life as a church around it, what will we do in the warfare against the enemy? Oh, may God grant it. Let us pray. Oh, Lord, as we said earlier, we believe, oh, Lord, help our unbelief. We thank you that you grant faith, that it is a gift, that repentance is a gift, that all the graces come from your mighty hand. We just, we come, Lord, helpless. We come having to tell you how much we doubt you, how suspicious we are of you, how quickly we don't believe in your power and your goodness, your wisdom, how little of your word we really take in day by day, how we don't believe it. We don't believe in its goodness. We don't believe in its effect to change our lives. We don't believe in prayer. We don't really believe in worship, Lord, because we don't come expectant, excited. What will God do? And even praying with, with expectancy, oh, Lord, renew us, revive us, restore us, transform us. Build us in love. Change families. Change marriages. Oh, Lord, rain your grace upon us. May we not be like Nazareth, Lord. A place in which you could not do many works because apparently nobody would come to you and really believe you and trust you. Oh, Lord, may we be a place where the mighty works of God are done constantly because we're a people who believe in the greatness and goodness of our God. Amen. The pleasing scene is clouded or with pain. Thank you for listening to this weekly podcast from Fort Worth Presbyterian. Our prayer is that this message was able to nurture a joy for loving God and loving people in you. Please visit our website for worship service times, directions to the church, and to subscribe to this podcast. Our web address is fortworthpca.org. Fort Worth Presbyterian is a part of the Presbyterian Church in America. Jesus, my Lord, my life, my light, oh, come with blissful rain. Break radiant through the shades of night And chase my fears away Won't you chase my fears away?